0: NBC Arlington, it's good to be back. How you guys doing? You good? And so if you're new, don't know me, I'm Eric. I'm a location pastor here. It's good to be with you. Um, And so if you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Numbers 11. Uh, Numbers 11, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, Numbers 11. Uh, A couple of quick things. One, Amy mentioned an email that we all got, or members of the church got, um, in relation to our next congregational uh, or church family meeting. I want to encourage you guys to read that. Um, Check it out. Uh, It's a pretty lengthy email, um, but I think it's pretty important. And so check it out. If you got any questions about it, feel free to email me, email Joe, and we can help walk you through it if you have questions. And so um, don't hesitate to do any of that. Um, And also, I just want to say thank you for your prayers and your support over the last month. If you're new, I've been gone because we just had our third kid, right? Uh, I feel like uh, in Arlington, man, we we just got, got three kids, man. We just got kids everywhere at the house now. It's crazy. Uh, so uh, we're thankful for Kai, uh, but I'll say this, uh, anybody that tells you that having another kid is like riding a bike, that that, that is not true, not, not true. I don't forgot how to change a diaper and how to burp a kid, and so I'm just learning all over again, right? Uh, so let's do this. Uh, numbers 11, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into it, okay? Let's pray. Um, Father God, you are good. You are good, and your mercy endures forever. Father, that is an objective truth, and I pray that you will teach our hearts that. Father, I pray that whether life is good or whether life is hard, Father, that we will lean into you, that we will set you before us at all times, and that we'll understand that those who are in you, we will not be shaken. Help us to hear your word today. Help us to respond to it in faith, Father, and help us to declare, God, whatever you tell me today, I want to do it. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. That's the only way that we can do this. That's the only way that we're changed. That's the only way that we can obey by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. So I pray that you will move today. Do what you do. Transform lives, transform hearts. Teach us the words of our Savior, Jesus. We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen. amen. And y'all, so I grew up um, in uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, uh, the 757. And I grew up in a a lower middle class community, and it was a close-knit community. Uh, We had this old guy that was on the corner, right? And every time the kids would kind of ride bikes by his house, he was always trying to impart lessons to us. It wasn't weird. We knew him, right? And so, like, he would call us over and always try to teach us something. And I remember one day, he called a couple of us over, and we were just riding bikes. And he said this line. I never forgot it. I didn't know what it meant at the time, but I get it now. He he said, "Uh, experience is the only school that a fool will attend. That experience is the only school that, fool, that a fool will attend. That, that's, that, that's, that's a good phrase, right? Pretty, pretty good. Um, and what he what meant by that, if you don't know, is that in life, there are going to be certain mistakes that you make because you made them, right? I'll give you one for me. And so I moved to um, the D.C. area about 10 years ago now, and uh, I used to think that um, because escalators have moving stairs, you don't got to move. You can just stand on one, Right? <laughs> I used to think that. And then I moved to D.C., and apparently that's not the case. Apparently, when you get on the metro, you don't stand on the left side, right? Like, and if you stand on the, si- on the left side and simply ride up the escalator, people will let you know that that's not what you're supposed to do, right? So I, I made a mistake there. That, that was my bad. I-, I learned from that, right? And so, listen, some mistakes you learn because you make them. However, listen, there are some mistakes that you shouldn't learn because you learned them from somebody else, and that's something that we are hopefully going to do today because that is the preferable way to learn, right? And so the mistakes that we're going to hear this morning, we're going to hear about these mistakes that the people of Israel made. And we can learn from them. The New Testament actually says that we can learn um, from them because in 1 Corinthians ten six, 6, um, Paul was referring to the mistakes of Israel when he said this. He said, Now these things, so the mistakes that Israel made and all they did, Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then later in the same text, Paul says this. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So in other words, what Israel did, don't think that this can't happen to you. And so your question should be right now, okay, Eric, tell me, what exactly did Israel do? So let me give you a bit of context and then we'll get there. Here it is. And so listen, the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. And they were slaves, and God used a man named Moses to rescue them from the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, at the time. He said, Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And so y'all know that. Pharaoh said, nah, I'm good. And then God, what does he do? He miraculously sent 10 plagues um, to devastate Egypt. And so the first nine, like Pharaoh was unfazed. And then the plague comes um, the, when the firstborn in Egypt all died, and that was the last straw. Pharaoh tells Moses, go, leave, take your people with you. I don't care. They go, and then Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he takes his army. He pursues the people of God, Israel. And in that moment, Moses and the people of God are literally between a rock and a hard place. They have the armies of Egypt behind them. They have the Red Sea right in front of them. They absolutely have nowhere to go. And at the moment where they feel incredibly hopeless, they think, what are we doing? Why do we come out of Egypt? God miraculously splits the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. The, uh, the, the Egyptians pursue them. It closes back over them, and the water swallows them. And in that moment, God miraculously saves his people. That's a bit of background. So let's fast forward to the book of Numbers where we are today. If you're watching a movie, this is the point where the screen would go black and you would see text across the screen and it would say one year later, right? So this is what you would see. So in this, God miraculously has saved his people and then he gives his people instructions on how to be the people of God, how to live like that. So he gives instructions about their conduct, about the tabernacle. He gives them his own personal presence. He leads them. He feeds them miraculously every morning with this stuff called manna that just appears on the ground. And then yet, in Numbers 11, we don't see what we should expect to see. You see, we don't see a people full of faith because of what they just saw God do. We actually see a people who actually become disqualified from seeing God do even more because of their lack of faith. And this descent from being full of faith to having very little, guys, it can happen to us as well. It can. I don't know about you, hear me today, but it's easy for me to think, man, if I saw God split the Potomac River to save me, God, you ain't got to do nothing else for me. Like, I'm good for the rest of my life. Like, it's, it's easy for me to think, listen, if I, got, if I saw God do the miraculous, then I'll follow God joyfully to the day that I die. But, but hear me today, I'm going to give you this. Amazing, or even miraculous experiences with God might be what God uses to jumpstart your faith, but hear me this morning, that's not going to be what God uses to keep your faith. It's as you walk with him faithfully, step by step moment by moment through the ordinary things of life even when it's hard that's when we experience God keeping us and we see this in one year Israel experiences the miraculous God splits the red sea and in just one year they go from seeing God do amazing things to being sentenced to wander in the wilderness until they died because of their lack of faith and numbers 14 if you go forward a couple of chapters it actually tells you about this But how did they get there? Numbers 11 tells us. And I would argue that this tragedy began with something that is familiar with all of us. It's familiar to all of us. I would argue that the path to tragedy that the people of Israel underwent, it began with envy. It began with envy. So let me do this. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to walk through it for a bit. So Numbers 11, uh, verses, verse 1, I'm going to go down to verse 10. Here it is. It says, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble was among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing: the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of pedalum. The people went out and gathered it and ground it into hand mills or beat it in, um, or beat it in mortars and boiled it um, in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pause there. You see, the best way to describe Israel's attitude in this text is envy. And when you're looking for a, if you're looking for a definition of envy, let me give you one. I've heard it put this way. It's actually um, given to us by theologian Thomas Aquinas. He said, it, he said it this way. It's simple. It says, envy is simply sorrow in response to someone else's good. Envy is a sorrow for another's good. To to flesh it out even more, envy is the mistaken belief that what you have is not enough. Envy is the mistaken belief that you are even, if you're a Christian, envy can also lead to you thinking that you are owed more by God. And this is exactly what is happening to Israel. God has done so much for Israel, and they can't see it because they want something that they currently don't have. They're, they're tired of the spread that they're having. Manna has gotten a little old. And they're actually beginning to envy what they had back in Egypt. They're, they're beginning to envy what, what Egypt has. They begin to compare, hear me, what God had given them with what Egypt has. And they believe the lie that what Egypt has is better. And it's easy for us to get there. My question for you is Have you ever been there? It's interesting. Envy starts with discontentment, and it eventually leads to resentment. You move from wanting what someone else has to, like, hating on them a bit because they have it. You see, envy actually turns a familiar verse on its head. Some of you know this verse. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So you know what envy does? Envy rejoices when other people weep and weep with other people rejoice. This is what envy is. And let me tell you, we've all been there. We've all been there. We've all envied what someone else has. I'll give you an example here. Man, you got social media. I call social media envy machines, right? This is where they are. Because you hop on social media and somebody posts their picture and they went to the south of Spain on vacation. And right before then, you were satisfied with your vacation in Cleveland. You were, no shade to Cleveland, no shade to Cleveland. Somebody approached me after the last service was like, man, I grew up in Cleveland, my bad, man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But hear me today, you you were satisfied with Cleveland, your little vacation to Cleveland, and then somebody uh, posted their vacation in in Spain, all of a sudden you're dissatisfied. You want that. Let me give you another one. This is relevant, especially in Arlington. You see someone and, and, and maybe they post the picture of like their perfect dinner, right? And you can't even focus on the dinner because all you see is the kitchen in the background. Like, like you you see the nice backdrop, you see the marble counter, you see the space, right? And you live in Arlington or D.C. or something, and and you got a uh, 500-square-foot apartment, (laughs) and you got a roommate that snores. (laughs) And all you can think about when you see that is, that's why your food looks nasty, Okay, it ain't even seasoned right. Like, that, that ain't just hating. That is also envy, right? And maybe you're not just envy of what, envious of what someone else has. Maybe you're envious of who someone has. We could do that too. Maybe you heard about that gathering that your friends had and you were not invited. or you saw a picture of people smiling and, 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 and you're like, yo, they didn't tell me about that. Or especially around here, you could have saved a date to another wedding. And you're inside, you, you You want to be happy, but all you want to do in that moment is to throw it in the trash because you look at it and you think, man, no, I'm better looking than her. Like, I'm a better person than her. Why is she married and I'm not? And let me tell you, all, it's, it's, not, it's not wrong to desire friendship. It's not wrong to desire marriage. But hear me, however, it turns to envy when you resent another person for having it or you feel sorry for yourself because you don't. Or maybe it's not who someone has, maybe it's also where someone else in life, where someone else is in life. And this is, this is DC right here. Right? You think, man, I wish I had that job that gave me that kind of significance, right? I wish I got to travel like that. I wish I had that kind of freedom. I wish I got that promotion. I wish I had these other things. Or or, or maybe even to be more serious, maybe it's someone the same age that has the family that you want. I remember for struggling almost, uh, personal, personal note, I remember struggling for almost three years with infertility with me and my wife. We would actually be able to be pregnant, but the pregnancy wouldn't go to turn. We lost two babies. And I remember, man, like just being distressed, especially when I would see someone else's birth announcement. Man, I wanted to be happy with him, but but every single time I would see a birth announcement, that would be a dagger to my chest. I would weep when they would rejoice and think, why can't that be me? Now, y'all, envy surrounds us. And here's the thing. Most of us don't realize the deadly poison that it is. It is deadly, and we don't realize it because, matter of fact, most of us, a lot of us, we don't realize we got envy. Envy is one of those embarrassing sins that you don't want to admit. Because envy it seems like it, it, it just reveals insecurity. We don't want to admit it, and so we, we'll redefine it. We, we think it's something just like petty jealousy that comes with just wanting a little bit more. But the Bible actually treats it far more serious. One theologian actually puts it this way. He says, never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. Never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. Proverbs 14.30 puts it like this. It puts it like this. It says a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but evil makes the bones rot. Pretty much it's saying that evil and compare, envy and comparison rots us down to the bones. It destroys our appetites and our ability to enjoy anything. And let me give you a diagnostic test. If you're thinking, hey, like, how do I know if a healthy desire has really turned into envy? Let me give you a diagnostic. It's a good rule of thumb. Look at your joy right now. Look at your joy. Has your desire sapped all of the joy out of your life? Has it sapped all the joy out of your life? And listen, and when you are envious like the people of Israel, you start to find fault with everything. When you look at the test, they're like, yo, this manna is terrible. What is it? It's not even gluten-free. <laughs> and listen, and, 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 and what... And what does not do us any favors is that we live in a culture that uses envy as a marketing strategy. We live in a culture that wants to create enemy, uh, envy in you so that you will buy more. And I can tell you how many people that I've talked to where the underlying theme that's going on in their lives that they don't realize it is envy. I hate this, man, and I hate it even when I talk to women in our church body and how we live in a culture where the preferred market strategy is getting you to envy another person's beauty and the result is that when you look in the mirror you can't even be satisfied with what you see because our culture has made you focus on what somebody else looks like. Y'all, never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. One theologian once said that God concluded the Ten Commandments with the command thou thou shalt not covet, covet in other words, envy. Because if you obey that one, you'll obey all the rest. Pretty much saying that the reason why you lie, you steal, you commit adultery, and even kill is usually because of envy. You want what you currently don't have. And listen, an envy can quickly lead and have you believing that God is withholding, thing. God is withholding good from you. I know I'm spending some time belaboring this point, but let let me ask you this question. Where in your life are you tempted to believe that God is withholding good things from you? See, envy will have you doubting God's goodness. And here's the thing. Once Israel began to doubt God's goodness, it was a short step for them to begin to doubt God's promises. And everything went wrong once they got to that point. It cost them dearly. And I say all this to say this. If we are to live as a community here in the fullness of life that God has come to offer us, we have to go to war with envy. We got to go to war with that. Do not let envy choke out your faith. Envy is spiritual amnesia that makes you forget about the goodness of God, and we got to fight it. And If we're going to fight it, we got to remember a couple of things, and I think this text actually helps us. So let me give you a couple of points here, and then I will sit down. And so here's the first thing I'm going to give you. To go to war with envy, we got to remember and rehearse our past salvation. We got to remember and to rehearse our past salvation. It's interesting here that envy started with the people of God forgetting about God's goodness in the past. So verse 1, it says, it says And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. The, the, the verse almost carries its connotation that God overheard their complaining. So it wasn't as if they were complaining to God. They were complaining amongst each other. They complaining about their hardship, thinking, and then forgetting that a year ago they were slaves. Completely forgot about that. Verse 4, it actually says this. It says, and the people of Israel also wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Y'all, do y'all see what they're saying here? They're saying, yo, Egypt, Egypt wasn't that bad. Like we were in chains, but the cookout, the cookout was amazing. (laughs) That's pretty much what they're saying. And they've totally forgotten what God has done for them and and, and where they were if God didn't, and where they would be if God did not step in. Y'all, God miraculously saved them, and if God saved them in the past, that should be an assurance that God will surely show up for them in the present. Listen, y'all, envy will keep us unaware of what we deserve and make us act like God owes us something. And, y'all, sometimes a helpful discipline in us for pa- is, is for us to pause and to remember what we deserve. Sometimes that's a helpful discipline. When you have a bad day, sometimes it's helpful to lay your pillow, lay your head on the pillow at night and to remind yourself of what you deserve. We deserve God's wrath because of our sin. And God met us not with wrath. He met us with mercy. He gave his own son up, Jesus, for us. He just lived the perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, giving us an opportunity to not experience the Father's wrath, but to experience the Father's mercy. He saved us. He delivered us from sin. And this is helpful for us to think about it. We deserve bad, but even though we deserved bad, God had our good in mind and made good available through the cross of Jesus Christ. I love this verse, and I say it all the time. I mean, y'all might be tired of me saying this verse, but I say it because I have to repeat it to myself often because I, I'm a guy I struggle with it. Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his son for us, but gave, him, gave himself up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? That's a verse that helps us understand that in the moment we experience that familiar sting of envy and we tend to think that God is holding out on us in the present, what do we have to do? We gotta look to the past. If God gave us this most precious thing in the past, that means he's not holding out on us in the present. We can trust him even when our hands aren't filled with the things that we want right now. So not only do we re- remember and rehearse our past salvation, we also have to do this. Let me give you something else. We also have to remember and rehearse our present provision. All that to say, we've got to remember and rehearse what we currently have right now. Because it's more than we think. So check this out. God has given them all that they need right now, and Israel didn't believe it. They couldn't see it. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Pretty much saying, Listen, if all we have to eat is this manna, we're gonna shrivel up and die. This is not enough. But here's the thing that wasn't even true. How do we know? Because Deuteronomy 8, right? They've been wandering in the wilderness, and Deuteronomy 8 for a while, all they're eating is manna and quail. And Moses says that during the 40 years that they spent in the, in, in the wilderness, their feet did not swell up. Uh, the swelling of the feet, it meant malnutrition, right? Meaning that what they were eating, the spread that they have, was truly enough to satisfy them. Like God actually took care of them. And here's the thing, I've heard put it put this way. Envy says that if all that I have if, if all that I have is what well, I'll, I'll put it in another way if all that I have is what God has given me right now envy says that's not enough envy is you saying my soul is going to shrivel up and die if God doesn't give me what I think I need and that's a complete lie and even more that's going to that's stop you from enjoying the kind of life that God has given you right now it's going to stop you we actually see this in the Garden of Eden y'all In the Garden of Eden, God puts Adam and Eve, man, like two naked individuals in a garden, and they say, listen, everything here, have at it. This is a beautiful place, have at it. Except there's one tree that I don't want you to partake in. Everything in this garden is available to you. And envy caused them not to enjoy paradise because they were focused on the one thing that God didn't give them in the moment. Uh, Tim Keller, late Tim Keller actually put it in this way. I I love this. Envy will make you think that something is wrong, even in paradise. You tend to think that your happiness is simply on the other side of what you want. Listen, you can have the world, and it's still not enough. So a question for you here is this. Another diagnostic question. Is there something always wrong with you? What I mean by that is this. And we will make you perpetually unhappy at work, at home, and even in life. And we would make you hypocritical and find faults in everybody and everything. You're always thinking that someone somewhere else is enjoying things that you can't partake in. And if that's you, I want to invite you to do something this morning. Don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. If you're always feeling like happiness is on the horizon. It's always on that tree that God has not let you have yet. Don't ignore that. Because this is an opportunity, hear me, for you to move from envy to a deeper faith. How is that? Let me take a step back and explain what faith is. We tend to think that faith is just mental assent to some of the so we sing that song, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, God three in one, right? We tend to think that faith is simply me mentally assenting to those truths. And then we tend to think that if faith is that, then all that uh, not having faith is, is me disbelieving uh, doctrine. And that's a part of faith, but faith is actually more than that. Hebrews 11.1 one says this. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen. Look at that last phrase, the conviction of things not seen. Hang with me. Faith here is hung in sharp relief not to um, um, uh, not believing core doctrines. That's a part of faith. But faith in this verse is hung in sharp relief to how things appear to be. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for, the conviction of things uh, not seen. And Hebrews eleven declares that faith is this: it's the assurance of who God is and His promises, despite how life appears to be in the moment. I'll give you an example to drive this on. You may not understand what I'm saying, but I told you this example before. One of my first dates was to a haunted forest. Don't ask me why I did that. <laughs> but don't ask me why. That's the worst, fellas, man. You look to take a girl out. That's the worst place you could take a woman. Especially if you are jumping, right? Especially if you're jumping, right? Like, that's the worst impression. Like, you're trying to say that you're a man and you're out here jumping. Like, you can't do that. And so I did that, right? And it wasn't a good move, but I went, and the only thing that got me through, the only thing that stopped me from jumping and, 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 and looking like a punk, was that I, re- I was rehearsing as I walked through the 104s what was true despite what I saw you walking through a haunted forest, you got people running around with chainsaws in their hands. You got people with knives in their hands. And if I just paid attention to what I saw, I would be jumping all over the place. But I didn't do this out loud. When I'm walking through with my day, I'm in my head thinking, yo, these people ain't real. Well, they are real, but they're employees. They can't touch me. I signed a waiver, right? I can sue. I can sue if they touch me, right? I'm meditating on truth over and above what I'm seeing in the moment. And I say all that to say is this, envy is something like that. Envy will make it appear that God is not who, is not who he says he is as you navigate life. As you walk through life, it can make it feel, envy will make you feel God isn't good, or maybe God is good, but he's good to other people, and he lost my address when he's giving out good things. Y'all, envy distorts our view of God, of the truth of who God is, and even distorts our view of other people. So when we are walking in the grip of envy, how do we move towards deeper faith? Let me give you one thing really quick. We worship. We worship. Worship is a discipline that can help us move from envy. God, you're not good. God, 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 you're holding out on me. To faith. God, I trust that you are who you are, despite how things feel. And let me tell you, one of the things that we've done a, a, a disservice of in kind of evangelicalism is we've equated worship with singing. And worship is more than that. This is a part of it, but this is a very small part part of it. Yeah, it's great for us to rehearse through lifting our voices, the truth of God's word, and and, and God tells us to do that. But worship is us seeing and savoring the truth of God. And we certainly need to worship when our emotions and our sight are telling us otherwise about God. I love Psalm 73. I don't have time to walk through it, but Psalm 73 is a psalm about envy. I want to invite you to read that this week and meditate on that. I'll invite you to read it because Asaph, the writer in that psalm, the whole song was about struggling with envy and how he personally is struggling with it. And he says in that psalm that I wrestled with it until verse 17 in that chapter. It says he went into the sanctuary. In other words, what he meant is this. He says, I was besieged by envy until I began to worship. Pretty much saying, listen, if envy is you meditating on what's not yours, worship for those in christ is you meditating on the god who is yours listen envy would tempt you to believe that you have nothing and worship will remind you that in god you have absolutely everything and that's true despite how you feel in the moment y'all we bring our envies to god and we meditate on his character until the truth of who he is warms our souls And let me give you a brief word about this before I move to the next point. It's real practical. It's going to be hard for you to do this when you simply spend 10 minutes a day meditating on the character of God and the rest of the day envying. Here's a verse for you, Psalm 16, 8. I think this is a helpful verse for me in all of this. David says this. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be Shaken, I have set the Lord always before me. How do we do that? I'll get there in a second. But let me ask you this: what do you what do you envy today? What do you envy? Somebody else's life, somebody else's job, somebody else's bank account, somebody else's relationships. Well, what are you tempted to envy today? One tool that could be helpful to you is to rehearse an aspect of God's character from the Scripture that soothes your specific sore spot of envy. I'll give you an example. There's a conversation I had uh, a few months ago. Uh, I'm not going to call this person out, but I remember talking to someone from NBC Arlington and really seeing, even from, a bit from afar, a transformation that God has wrought in this person's life. Uh, this person it was very clear when I would talk to them uh, that um, every single time that they would hear about an engagement or like a, a wedding or a new relationship, it just gave her sorrow. And you can just see it all over right? And that seemed to change. And so I was asking her about it, and um, it was a long conversation, but I'm gonna summarize it from you and just just tell you some bits of what she said. Uh, She was saying, listen, pretty much, like what's been helpful is to rehearse what God has said about himself. Pretty much she was saying, summarizing here, whenever I start to feel envy, I force myself, and she said this, to meditate on the truth of Matthew 6, 28 through 30, where it says that God cares about the leaders of the field, birds of the air, I'm more valuable than them. I'm I'm, I'm more valuable than them. And pretty much he was saying that, listen, he cares about me. So the question I got for you is, what was she doing in that moment? Instead of meditating on what she doesn't have, she was using whenever envy bubbled up, instead of allowing that to allow her to drift towards meditating on what she she doesn't have, That envy was an indicator light on her soul for her to begin meditating on what I have in Christ. And we can't do that unless we hide God's word in our hearts. She's allowing her envy as a prompt to allow her to rehearse the truth of Scripture. So y'all, let me encourage you to hide God's word in your heart so that the moment that envy bubbles up, you actually have something to settle it with. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. That's a way that we can set the Lord always before us, amongst this familiar feeling of envy. But not only that, let me give you this last point. We also need to remember and to rehearse our future glory. Band, you guys can come back up, because in this test, in this moment, the people of God—they actually forgot when they started complaining. They forgot that the wilderness was temporary. And they weren't going to be out there forever. They forgot that the menu that they had in the wilderness was temporary. They weren't going to eat manna forever. You know, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the promised land before they got in, it was a land overflowing with milk and honey, right? So the spread was going to change. And milk and honey might not appeal to you. That, 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 that's more like us saying, like, the promised land was overflowing with steak and cheesecakes, right? Amazing. <laughs> And then, well, I mean, I guess I forgot this is Arlington, and so if you're vegan, I'll tell you that the the promised land was overflowing with Brussels sprouts and quinoa, right? It's great, right? So the menu was going to change. They weren't going to be in that situation forever. And I'll tell you that to say this this morning. I don't know what's causing you envy today. I don't know what you're waiting on. And let me pull back and let me tell you, Some of the things that we're waiting on, man, it is incredibly hard to wait. I get that. I've been there. In some ways, I'm still there. But hear me, your hardship right now is a platform from which God wants to declare that your hardship is light and momentary compared to the glory that he's going to reveal to you. He's coming in the future. I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures, and you might not have time to write all of these down. I just wanna put them on the screen. You might wanna write down the reference because this could be helpful for you when you're wrestling with envy for you to meditate on what's coming. Here's one, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. I just kinda referenced it. It says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, Think about the things that you desire in this moment that you desperately need to have. Guess what? Those things are transient. But the things that are unseen, the things that are coming, are eternal. Let's keep going. Psalm 17, 15 says, but but as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied, satisfied with seeing your likeness. Listen, when we see Jesus face to face in the future, none of us in that moment are gonna look back and declare we missed out on anything. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy and your right hand are pledges forevermore. First Corinthians 2.9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no human heart has conceived or imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Y'all, it literally is so great what is coming to us in the future that it cannot be described. And if I could describe it to you, you wouldn't believe it. It's like me trying to describe a square circle or a four-sided triangle. It's so good, we can't even, we don't even have the conceptual capacity to tell you about, to tell each other about it. And I say all of that to say this, you may not have what you want in a moment, but hear me, the knowledge of what is coming can make you content even now, even though there's a whole lot that you don't have yet. It really can. Right now, we have the opportunity in the the midst of our wants and desires and longings to declare that, Jesus, you truly are enough. Those aren't just words. And there will be surely a day where our desires are satisfied in, in his presence, Right now, you may feel incredibly lonely, but listen, there'll be a day where your heart is bursting with companionship and love because you'll see him face to face. You may be in pain right now, but listen, when you see him, your body will be overcome by pleasure. You may be ignored now, dismissed now, disregarded now, ignored now, but there'll be a day where you will be seen and honored by God and he'll declare well done over your life. I love how Paul wrestled with this. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, uh, 11 through 19. I won't read the whole passage, but I'm gonna give you a couple of verses. He said, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all these through him who gives me strength. Later on in that text, he says this, he says, and I don't have it on the screen, but he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let me give you something to keep this in mind. Paul was locked up when he wrote that verse, when he wrote those verses. He's under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, 24 hours a day. To put it in another way, he's not on a beach. He doesn't have a drink with a little umbrella in it. He's not living his best life, right? Everything's not going well. He says, in that, in that, I have learned to be content with a little or with a lot. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contrary to popular opinion, that's not an athlete's verse, right? I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. The key phrase is through him, in him. Because listen, Jesus is the real manna. He's the true manna that we need. NBC Arlington, in Christ, we surely have enough. We truly do. He is the true man And knowing him, I promise you, y'all, knowing him is what your soul desperately needs. You don't need a spouse right now. You need to know Jesus Christ. You don't need a promotion. You need Jesus. You don't need extra money in your bank account. You need Jesus. He's the all-satisfying one that our soul desperately needs. And think about it. When we look at Jesus Christ, he is the opposite of envy. Think about him on the cross. Rather than, being, than hanging on the cross, being resentful of the fact that he has to suffer and everybody that he's looking at doesn't have to, Jesus didn't do that. He willfully um, gave his life up on the cross and willingly give himself, gave himself to be broken for our sin. He willingly gave up good things so that we could experience the good of salvation. Jesus is a true manna. And hear me today, you're a will cease to be overpowering in your life. Right now, envy is really overpowered desire. You want, you want, you want, you don't have it, and you think, God, you're not good because you haven't given me that. But listen, your hunger will cease to be overpowering only when you feast on Jesus. That's the cure for your envy. And so, listen, y'all, I'm gonna round up the service. I'd love to talk to you more if you have any questions about that. But in the moment, let's pray, and then we're gonna come to the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can taste and see that you are good, that whatever circumstance our life finds us in, that there's joy that's available even there because you're available. So, Father, help us to believe that. And, Father, I pray that you'll help us. Thank you so much that you can handle our honesty, that we can come to you with a handful of your envies, with our envies, that we can come to you with all the things, God, that we're frustrated about, and we can be honest about those things. And we can trust, even in those moments, as we rehearse who you are and what you've done for us, that you'll begin to reveal to us more more of yourself and that we can know that you truly are enough. Help us not to make the mistake that the people of Israel made. Help us to trust that you are real and that you are true and that your promises are right, despite how things appear to be right now. Help us, Lord. We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.